Welcome to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. This week's message is Hills to Die On, Part 4, Salvation, recorded Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. If you have a story about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Now here's Dan with today's message. By show of hands, how many of you have caught yourself doing something silly like that when you're sending a voice text? Or maybe you're like me and it's happened to you, uh, and you get it confused between sending a voice text and a voicemail. Uh, recently, I, I called someone, I got their voicemail, and they're my age, so it's okay to leave voicemails. And so I said, hey, it's Dan, just wondering if you'd be available for lunch today, question mark. And there's no backspacing that, right? Like, once you say it, it's out there. <laughs> or I'm guessing all of us have fallen victim to the enemy known as autocorrect when you're sending a text. Here's just a few that I saw this week. This first one, guys trying to be Casanova, right? Like, oh, my love for you is strong. I'd buy you a casket if I could. Uh, castle, castle, right? Uh, the second one is a little bit more of a groaner. Uh, hey, could you pick up some human beef on your way home tonight? Like the power of one letter, right? Hunan beef. Love Hunan beef. Third one, uh, I can't wait to see you. I'm getting pregnant tonight. Shouldn't we discuss this? I mean Pringles. Like, raise your hand if you love Pringles, right? That other thing at this stage of life? No, thank you. This one's a grandpa who's, who texts grandma says, how are the kids? They were sick. They got allergy meds at nine and at nap time they get vodka. I don't think it was an autocorrect, right? Like that one's just real. And this last one, uh, hey, I had tricks for breakfast and it was so seductive. And then it just gets worse, right? Like seductive, delicate, delicious. Stupid autococcus, auto cucumber. Never mind, I had tricks this morning and it was Amazon. And so, uh, hey, and those aren't even the ones that I saw on Scott's phone this week. You know, like those ones, I couldn't share very many of them. I know some of you really enjoy the back and forth that he and I, he and I have with each other. We kind of poke fun and we love each other a lot. And so we're able to do that. But I don't know if you've noticed this pattern that all he does is imitate whatever I do. I put up a really great picture of him holding a cat. And he responds by putting up a picture of me as a child. Like, what's that? Or I make fun of his age, and then a couple weeks ago, he calls me the old preacher. He calls me the old preacher, right? And so there's just this pattern of him being a copycat. And so I just want you to know this. I think Scott is a great leader. He's my favorite preacher here, and I think he has great hair, right? <laughs> While the debate over one space or two really isn't worth a huge fight, and certainly not a, a hill worth dying on, we do know that the words we use or don't use, or when we use them and when we don't use them, it's really important. Many of you have probably told a child of yours, use your words, and then you say a quick little prayer that they'll choose the right words. Our words and their power is actually talked about a lot in Scripture. Uh, Proverbs 11 says, Evil words destroy one's friends, while wise discernment rescues the godly. In chapter 18, it says, Death and life 
That's, that's heavy. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And then James, the brother of Jesus, writes maybe the most famous paragraph on the power of our words in James 3 when he says, people can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. And while we could spend a month talking about the words that we use with each other, today I want us to focus in on the words that we use in our relationship with God, the words that we use towards him, the words that we hear from him, and the words that we use with others about him. Last week, Scott talked about our prayer life, one form of those words and what that looks like when it's really simple and authentic. And today we're going to zero on on the words we declare about Jesus to him and to others. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 14 for like the 14th week in a row, I think. And, And as much as any time in the Gospels, words matter and carry a lot of weight. You see, Jesus has been arrested and he's taken to the high priest's house. And we know from John's Gospel that the person that he's going to see is Caiaphas. And Mark tells us that gathered there are the who's who of Jewish nobility. They're the haves in a society of have-nots. And what has come to be true of them is that their greatest have is their power. And this scene has been unfolding over and over again as we've read through Mark together. As Jesus has gained influence, the obvious implication is that these men have lost a great deal of their influence. And their influence, that's their power. That's their honor. And so Caiaphas says this, he says, it's better for one man to die than for a whole nation to crumble. And it's one of those times when someone says something really true and beautiful, but it's not really what he meant. See, we read about the necessary and sacrificial death of Jesus, and because we know about the resurrection, and because we know about his victory over death, we can say yes and amen to that. But when Caiaphas, when these men said things like that, what they meant is he needs to die so that our power doesn't, right? We have this structure, and and as long as Jesus is gaining followers, we're losing them, and we're losing our power and our status. And so we pick it up in verse 55 where we read, inside the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands. And in three days, I'll build another made without human hands. But even then, they didn't get their stories straight. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? You see, for all of the mistakes that Caiaphas made, he's barking up the right tree with this question because everything really does hinge on that question and on the reply to it. These men had grown up learning and memorizing the Old Testament scriptures, and they knew of the promise that God would send not just another messenger or another prophet, but instead a Messiah, 
God in human skin. Not just one who would speak of deliverance, but the one who would be the deliverer. And over and over again, the religious leaders, they had seen people pretend to be the Messiah. Then their stories would fall apart. Their followers would finally sniff out the scam and move on to the next pyramid scheme. But not with Jesus. See, these men have heard the stories. They've witnessed his teaching and his miracles. And they knew that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy day by day. And ultimately, they have two main issues with Jesus. First, he doesn't match up with their preconceived notion of what a Messiah ought to look and act like. He's not a warrior. In their eyes, he doesn't appear to be regal. Second, Jesus hasn't buddied up with them. See, in their minds, it would only make sense for a Messiah to utilize them and their power structure. Instead, Jesus has referred to them as old, useless wineskins. And he's recruited a bunch of lesser thans to be his disciples. And so, after, so over the last three years, their intrigue has turned to insult. And instead of paying attention to his testimony, they've put him on trial. And we use that word trial pretty loosely because it's a mock trial. It's not real. See, there's there's the rules in Jewish law about how trials take place, and at least three of those rules are violated in this trial. First, there is to be no trial at nighttime. And second, there would be no trial during Sabbath or during one of the festivals. And third, uh, you would never be tried on the same day that you were arrested. It would wait until at least the next day so that you could work on your defense. See, their objective, it was never justice. It was simply the elimination of Jesus because he threatened their position and their power. But Jesus does answer their question. He doesn't just answer it. He doubles down by quoting from two passages, Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, that they would know really, really well. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Caiaphas and his gang have a decision to make, either get in line and follow Jesus, admitting that the, the mountain of evidence is true, or condemn God to death simply because he claims to be God. And it's really the same position each of us is in in regards to Jesus' claims. You've probably heard of C.S. Lewis, and maybe you've heard the quote that's attributed to him about, we have to decide whether Jesus is a liar or a lunatic or Lord. But I want you to listen to the whole paragraph where he talks about that. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic <laughs> on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and declare him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. 
See, the people in that room had a decision to make, and uh, it's this phrase that Scott's been using lately, will you crown him with thorns or crown him with glory? And the people in this room today watching online in Broken Bow, uh, we have the same decision before us. Will I condemn him in my heart and mock him? Or will I listen to his claims and build my life around him and his truth? And the most important thing about anyone in all of history is what they do with the person of Jesus. And many of you here today, you've made that decision. You've crowned Jesus as king of your life. But I also know that in a room this size, there's a lot of us here who are still in kind of investigation mode. You're in process. Uh, You're giving church a shot, maybe even though you have some past church hurt. Maybe someone invited you and said, just try one more time. Maybe this place is different than places you've been before. And if that's you or if you've been in process for uh, a long time, can I just tell you how glad that we are that you're here. See, in just a few weeks, we're going to have a morning of baptisms. Mark it on your calendar for October 30th. If you've been here for a while, you know it's one of the highlights where we just get to see people go into that baptistry, make a proclamation that Jesus will be crowned in majesty in their lives. A chance to join him, as Romans 6 says, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if that's something that you would like to talk about, man, please reach out to someone. Uh, One of our ministers, or maybe the person that you're sitting next to, the person who invited you to come here today, We would love to help you make the best decision that you can make in all of your life. So when the high priest was faced with such a decision, here's what he did. Starting in verse 63, we read, Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What's your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. Remember, this isn't the people. This is the the uppers, right? This is the peep, the haves in the world of have-nots. And then some of them began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophesy to us, they jeered, and the guards slapped him as they took him away. And there's one thing that's happening here that I don't want us to miss, and there's a transfer of power that's taking place. Listen to uh, this passage from Leviticus 21. We don't go there very often, but this is a really important couple of sentences. It says, the high priest has the highest rank of all the priests. The anointing oil, Scott talked about that a few weeks ago, has been poured on his head, and he has been ordained to wear the priestly garments. He must never leave his hair uncovered. And get this, he must never tear his clothing. So what's taking place here is Jesus is fully becoming high priest. Caiaphas has kind of worked his way out of office in the eyes of God. And Jesus is taking that position. The one who goes into the presence of God and intercedes for his people. The temple curtain has been torn or will be torn shortly. The priest has torn his clothing, giving way to Jesus as our high priest. And because of Jesus, there's nothing that stands in the way of your access to God. He is our high priest, and he has made us his temple where he lives in our hearts, in our lives. We're going to celebrate that in a few minutes, but I think it's really important that we realize that as Jesus is taking these steps towards the hill that he will die on, 
He does it completely alone. See, in the verses that lead up to this mock trial, we read that Judas arrived with a detachment of soldiers who were there to arrest Jesus. And Judas has prearranged this top secret signal, a kiss, to indicate which person to arrest. Now, if I'm Judas, and I think maybe I just point, right? Like, I'm not going to go up and, and, and give this intimate greeting to my friend. But that's what Judas lines up. But if you read John's gospel, you'll see that what he did was completely unnecessary. Because in John 18, we read this, that Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them, the soldiers. And he said, who are you, who are you looking for? And they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus said, I am he. And if you read these gospels together, what you see is that Jesus willingly identifies himself. And then Judas awkwardly steps forward, kisses him on the cheek and calls him rabbi. I've got to think at this moment that 30 pieces of silver started to feel pretty heavy in his pocket. And as Jesus is led away, we're quietly told that every single one of his disciples had run away. All but one. It says that Peter continued to follow him at a safe distance, finding himself just outside the home that Jesus was taken to. And if you remember, Peter, he'd been the most brash of all the disciples, saying, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And then he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. But starting in verse 66, we read this about Peter. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself up at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway and just then a rooster crowed. And when the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them, but Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. And Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. And suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter broke down and he wept. And Luke adds this little nugget in his gospel. It says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked directly at Peter. So within a matter of maybe an hour, Peter goes from, I will die on on the hill defending you. To who? Me? I don't know that man. As Jesus is facing a sham trial, Peter faces three simple opportunities. And to be honest, I, I think we face the same three opportunities and simply do you know him when nothing else in this world makes sense do you know him and do you know him when the world's perception of what a christian is takes a negative turn and newsflash it has and so do we just give way to that or do we try to change what the world thinks do you know him when it means you need to live your life differently because he becomes king of your life and I want you to understand this. Jesus, Jesus gets us. He knows that at times we'll be back and forth just as much as a tennis match. Just a couple of weeks ago, we read this verse. Jesus is talking to his most devoted followers 
as they're walking from the Last Supper to the garden to pray together. He says, all of you will desert me. The scriptures say that God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And then a couple chapters later, after Jesus does rise from the dead, he, he tells this to the three women who first saw him. He says, now go tell the disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. Understand this. He will, or you will fail. And he will come back for you. If it was true for the disciples, it's true for us. We will fail him and he will forgive. Do you understand the depth of love Jesus has for you? The answer is no, you don't. None of us do. It is, it is so great beyond anything that we can comprehend. Right? Wider than anything. Deeper than anything. Higher than anything is the love of God for us, his people. And if you're like me, and if I'm anything like Peter, it'd be too easy to say, I'm not that lovable. I've pushed him away too many times. I've denied him once too often. I love what G.K. Chesterton said about that. He said, unlovely things must be deeply loved before they become lovable. And do you know what that is? It's grace. It's unmerited favor. It's possessing something that you couldn't possibly earn. love this quote. God's law demands our wholehearted, unflinching, flawless devotion to God. And to that, I would just say, good luck. God's gospel, on the other hand, declares God's wholehearted, unflinching, flawless devotion to us. That's good news. And some of you have been striving to make up for the mistakes that you've made in your life and you don't feel lovable because you still feel the ugliness and stain of your sin. And like Peter, maybe you've denied Jesus in your mind too many times to count, both in word and deed. And maybe you've been trying to earn his love back. And I just tell you, good luck with that. You could live the rest of your life perfect and not be able to earn that back. You can't earn it, but it is extended as a gift. I have some friends who have been attending here for a couple of years, and when they started coming, someone told them, Third City, that's just that place. They're all about grace. And I guess I would say we're guilty, right? We are, and we love about the grace of God for us. And if you've been around, you know that we don't dodge the hard stuff. We strive to teach all of God's word, but absolutely, 100%, we want to be a place that teaches and extends the grace of God through Jesus to as many people as possible. And as a result of that grace, we want to become better people. Dallas Willard said this, that grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. You see, I want to be a different man and live a different life because I know that Jesus loves me, not so that Jesus will love me. And if you look over in John's gospel, we see the fulfillment of that promise of Jesus. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Peter and the other disciples are there, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my old way of life. And the others say, we'll go with you because misery loves company, Right? And so they're out there fishing, going back to their profession. They're catching nothing. And then Jesus is on the shore, 
And he sees them kind of giving up on the day, throwing the towel in, and he says, try the other side of the boat. And they're like, uh. And it starts, to, it starts to remind them of the first time they met Jesus. They catch 153 fish, and Peter may not be the quickest one, but he's the quickest one in that boat. He realizes that it's Jesus, and he jumps in and he swims to him. And they all have breakfast together around a fire. And Jesus takes Peter aside, and he, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, probably looking at the ground, he says, I, I do love you. And he asks him a second time, Peter, do you really love me? And he says, I love you, Jesus. And the third time, and maybe, maybe, maybe a rooster crowed, Peter, do you love me? He says, you know all things, I love you. And I know I've shared this with some of you before, but what's taking place there is beyond what our English words tell us. See, because there's two different words for love being used. The first time, Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? The highest form of love. And Peter can't bring himself to that because he's just denied him. And he says, Jesus, you know that I phileo you. Brotherly love. Second time, Jesus says, do you agape me? And he comes back with the same thing. He says, Jesus, I, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. And then the third time, Jesus stoops to Peter's level. He says, Peter, do you really phileo me? And Peter says, you know all things. You know that I do. And I believe that's grace. And I believe that is Jesus meeting Peter where he's at. And that moment is what changes everything for Peter. It's that moment that allows him to boldly proclaim the truth and the good news of Jesus for all the rest of his life. Because Jesus met him where he was at, showed him grace. And he does the same thing for us. Each and every one of us. So God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this moment in our service where we celebrate, we remember, we declare you as king of our lives. We thank you for the cup and for the bread, the reminder of your body and your blood shed for us. And we thank you that we know the end of the story, that you raise from the dead, you defeat death, and you stand before the Father in heaven on our behalf. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a person who's in that process of determining what you're going to do with the person of Jesus, and if you're at the point where you're like, I believe it's true and that's what I want for my life, you don't have to wait till October 30th. Uh, we keep that thing full. 24-7. We have another service after this one, and we would love to have that conversation with you. We would love to have you have that conversation with the person that brought you here today or brought you here a month ago, whatever that is. He's ready for you if you're ready for him. A few of us went to a conference in Florida this week. Seemed like a really good idea at the time. And... Uh, conference was obviously cut a little bit short. 
And uh, we heard some great stuff, though. And one of the things could have been the most depressing. Uh, speaker told us that at this point in history, that there are more unchurched people than in any point in all of history. And he said, you can see that as kind of a bummer. You can see that as glass half empty, or you can see the opportunity that's before us. And maybe your life, maybe you are hearing what Jesus has to say about you, and you are receiving the grace extended by him to you, and maybe your life is going to look a little bit more like Peter's now, where he spends the rest of his life proclaiming to anyone who will listen about the greatness and the love of Jesus. And so maybe your words become, will you go with me? And I know that's a scary thing. Will you go with me to church? Will you join this small group with me? Will you do Rooted next session? Whatever that is, will you go? And the the speaker said this. He said, you know, I've had so many conversations with people who are like, I've been thinking about it for a long time. My neighbor finally asked. And we looked at each other and we nodded heads like we've had those same conversations with some of you. And so will you be the person who proclaims to someone else, hey, I don't know everything, but I, I know someone. I know a Savior who loves you. And I know about this place that will do everything that they can to teach you about him. And just say the words, will you go with me? It might change someone's life. Thanks for listening to the Third City Christian Church Podcast. Please join us for one of our worship services at 9, 10, 15, or 11.30 a.m. in Grand Island and at 10, 15 a.m. in Broken Bow on Facebook Live and at thirdcityc.online.church each Sunday. For more information about Third City Christian Church, send email to podcast at thirdcityc.org. Call us at 308-384-5038 or visit us online at thirdcityc.org.